Hey everyone, welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the meaning! My name is Jared, I'm joined here by Wisecracks video editor Ryan. Hi! <laughs> one of our writers and researchers, Austin. Hey, how's it going? And another one of our writers and researchers joining us on the podcast for the first time, Claire. Howdy. Hey, Claire. So today we are breaking down a personal favorite of mine. It is Spring Breakers, the 2012 film written and directed by Harmony Corinne. Um, so Kareen. I think it is Kareen. It is. I'm sorry. Harmony Corinne. My bad. Um, so let's go ahead and get people's first impressions about this film. Uh, tell us about how you felt about it the first time you watched it and then having revisited it for this podcast. So let's go ahead and start with the new person on the block. Let's start with Claire. Um, so I have never watched this movie sober, um, <laughs> uh, but that's good because it gives me some consistency. Um, I, the first time I watched it, I remember that it, this was like 2012. So I was high alone in my dorm room um, and it had been hyped up a lot. And I just remember thinking, I, I think I was reading a lot of Nietzsche at the time, but like I was, I was like, I was, you know, 20 year old high in my dorm room kind of into Nietzsche. And uh, so I was thinking like, oh, you know, this is the Dionysian. This is, you know, the, like <laughs> debauchery that is like the meeting of wills. And I, I read way too much into it, which I think was kind of like my defense mechanism. So I didn't have to admit how much I was into just like all of the tits. Um, <laughs> <and> <laughs> Uh, so the second time I watched it, uh, which was recently, um, I, uh, yeah, I had, a, I, I had a lot of other feelings on it, but I will go into those in a minute. All right, cool. Well, I hope on this podcast we can appreciate both the tits and, uh, you know, we can have fun talking about philosophy, even if it's not deliberately in there. All right, well, let's go with Austin next. Uh, I don't really remember the first time I saw that. I, again, this is another one of those movies like Drive where I've seen it. I don't know, 12, 8, 10 times, something like that. Um, and I love this movie so much. I just think it is an aesthetic, emotive, and conceptual clusterfuck <laughs> that uh, that I think actually does have a lot of, of wonderful uh, philosophical – maybe appeals to the social unconscious that I think are fucking amazing. But beyond that, I mean, I think Franco's performance is, you know, this is his best performance. I haven't seen disaster artist yet, but so good. Um, it's still the best. This one. is, this is fucking unreal. I love the fact that they hired a couple of like former Disney people. Actually, Selena Gomez was still a sort of Disney queen at the time. Um, I love that they, they brought them in there to sort of juxtapose their bubblegum persona with this sort of like bad girl image or struggling with the bad girl image thing. Um, I think that the editing in this film is fucking brilliant. I mean, the fact that it didn't win some more awards for editing sound design, um, is a travesty. Um, I love it. I, I absolutely think this is a fantastic film and it actually, it gets more philosophically resonant the more times that I see it. And probably that has to do with just where I am in life, but um, it kind of smacked me in the face with a lot of really interesting themes this time. So, but I fucking love this movie. All right. And let's, uh, what about Ryan? All right. So um, I'm a huge Harmony Korean fan. I was before I saw this movie. So I was super pumped. Well, this seemed to be his big breakout role. You know, Megan Ellison, the billionaire, uh, 
owner of Annapurna Pictures basically just liked Harmony Korine and said, all right, what do you want to make next? So this is his kind of what blank check movie. Mm. Um, and basically, I will – I will. so I was super pumped going in. So uh, go. my first impression when I first saw it, I definitely – as was happening and when I left, I just left going – what the fuck was that? And what did I just watch? <laughs> and do I like that? D- did I have fun? It was the, you know, it was such a mix of weird styles and stuff. I totally did not leave thinking I understood what I'd seen, but I, you know, it seemed like something was there. So basically, on an entertainment level alone, I'd give it kind of a lower grade, like, uh, honestly, like a B minus maybe, uh, but having revisited it several times, especially after working for wisecrack, we've done a couple of videos on it, you know, I, on an intellectual level, I love the fuck out of this movie just, mm. but you know, and on a filmmaking level, I, I, I think it's awesome. Just the yeah. whole, we'll get into this later, but just the subjective, you know, the subjectiveness of what, uh, of the movie and, and, um, so yeah, I I and and obviously there's all these weird things like you know James Franco's performances and all this cool stuff in, um, like the ATL twins and stuff, just weird Harmony Corinne stuff peppered throughout Gucci Mane that I dug. But yeah, so that's kind of my main impression is that first time entertainment value lower grade, but but when you break it down, this movie is pretty interesting and awesome. Gucci Mane is fucking brilliant in this. I mean, I know yeah, he's got he's a small so bit awesome. part. But God, he so is good. so good, man. I mean, any man that yeah. has an ice cream cone tattooed on his face with a lightning bolt in it that says Burr is just another type of human, like a better type of human. But in yeah. this, in this he even film... Got, he even got to say Burr in the movie before <laughs> yeah. uh, Cotty gets shot in the arm. Burr! So good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let me just uh, cap this off before we get into the recap. Uh, I think a lot of what I'm going to say is a lot of what Austin already said. I love the shit out of this movie. This movie is so special to me. And if you ask Ryan, I never shut the fuck up about this movie. True and that's story. actually kind of the reason why he's had to watch it so many times. Because pretty much any time we're making a video and Spring Breakers is even semi-relevant to the discussion, I push to, oh, well, you know, we can mention Spring Breakers just because hmm. I think the movie is so, it resonates so much within our culture. And it's so interesting. But and, um, you know, I kind of like half jokingly, but half seriously every time somebody says like, oh, you know, did you see such and such movie, which everyone says is like the best movie in years. And I'll say, yeah, it was no spring breakers. <laughs> and I'm serious about this because, I mean, this movie is uh, really God. It's it's when I saw the opening of this film, I was honestly just blown away. Uh, it, just the first opening scene of this film where mm. we have the Skrillex music and all those girls and the just the pure hedonism we see of spring break. It was a tone I had never experienced before. And <laughs> you never watched Ryan MTV went to film school. <laughs> and no, no, no. They're totally different than MTV. Um, Ryan and I went to film school. And if I you know, I've seen a shit ton of movies, but this is the first time in like a decade that I felt like I had I was experiencing something new for the first time. Mm. On the one hand, we had what seemed like a very authentic celebration of all things excessive. But at the same time, it still held this kind of ironic, critical distance where the audience was laughing at all the six, all the excess and that is something that's a tone that I had never experienced before. Well, and I was and, like, wow, and, I'm seeing something new for the first time. And I think that that's something I haven't felt in a decade. I, I mean, I, I, fully <laughs> and I haven't agree. felt since. Well, remember how we were talking actually before we recorded and we were saying people throw around superlatives like, oh, this is the best or this is a masterpiece or this is brilliant. I actually do think this is a brilliant film. And I'm, yes. tr- I'm trying to say that with like 
as little emotion and inflection in my voice as possible because I want to be taken seriously. But um, <laughs> I really do think that this is a brilliant fucking movie. And to your point about the opening scene, what's so interesting is it starts off with not only are these people partying, but like six or seven of them are flipping the audience off. And I can't yes. help but wonder if that's the film literally saying, fuck you, straight <laughs> to the audience, straight to America, straight to the viewing public. And I think that's how the film starts. And to me, that takes balls. And I think that that sets the tone and that gets you like kind of primed and you're like, what the fuck am I going to see right now? I just got flipped yeah. off by the filmmaker. <laughs> and it's so special. I mean, I, I yeah. this movie is a visceral, fun, drug-like experience of party energy. Every time I'm watching it, I feel like, you know, I, I mean, I'm just like rhythmically grooving along with it. It's just, it's so <clears throat> much fun to watch. That's why I disagree with, see, I give this movie an A plus for just watchability because it's like being at a party. Um <laughs> It's like a drug experience. There's, I would say uh, there's parts of it that are like being at a party, but then there's a lot of just people staring off into space while uh, while we cut between ten different scenes from different you're not, times. That's, you're, you're obviously that's not the a Terrence, come down, man. That's yeah. the come down. You're obviously not. You're not a Terrence Malick fan, huh? <laughs> I see. No, me and me and me and uh, I have this argument a lot with Jared and stuff too. You know, like yeah, I love Terrence Malick. That's actually a great point because you know your point about the editing earlier as the editor or at, in this group or an, an editor. Like like to me, you know, when while some people kind of get this mood, I see basically. Harmony Kareen having 10,000 hours of him just like saying, all right, be weird, James Franco, and then cutting it together <laughs> in this, in this very, in this milieu of just, uh, milieu of, you know, like, all right, we're going to create this feeling, you know, that's just kind of, you're going to get, which I like. There, a part of me likes it, but also I kind of like, I don't know. I see beyond the gimmick sometimes. Like uh, uh, you can tell that it's just like, all right, I didn't have a lot to cut to here. So let's just go back to this other scene. And it does create a cool feeling that I haven't seen before. But Jared, I have a very important question. You know, you were talking about like, oh, this is the uh, an amazing. Like, like we're we're uh, we're laughing at these the excess, but we're also kind of a part of it with them. And it's a party movie. Um, what about and, and it's it's the best one you'd seen in years. But what about the next year when the same thing happened with Wolf of Wall Street? I would say is like. Very similar. Yes. You know, and yes, I, I, would I think agree. that is but a much more, I think, yeah, that's first. But this is, a, to me, Wolf of Wall Street is a much more better representation of like, like, an ex way more accessible to you being on the outside looking at these people, like, like the movie is told from their subjective point of view, but you're supposed to take away from it that this is excessive and kind of not normal, right? Well, I think uh, I'll agree that I think something similar happens in The Wolf of Wall Street, and I love The Wolf of Wall Street. Which do you like better? The Wolf of Wall Street is my favorite Scorsese movie. It's also, this movie is half the length, and I don't know. I mean, I can't really choose between the yes. two. I think that there are some very <laughs> important differences between the two, but let's move on. Uh, we can definitely do another episode on The Wolf of Wall Street. I'd actually love this, but let me give a quick recap. The recap is going to be very short because nobody watches this for the plot. Um, so, Candy, Faith, Cotty, and Brittany are four small-town college girls tired of the monotony of their lives and want to experience something new by heading to St. Petersburg, Florida for spring break. Only problem is they can't afford it, so they rob a fast-food restaurant and use the cash to bus it to Florida for spring break. While there, they have such a fun, seemingly spiritual experience that they never want to leave, even dreaming about buying a house there. One day, they get too wasted at a party and get busted by the cops, landing them in jail. The girls are bailed out by a local drug dealer slash rapper alien who insists they spend the rest of spring break with him. Faith gets uncomfortable in Alien's social group and takes the bus back home while Candy and Brittany get closer with Alien than ever. 
Alien gets confronted by his once childhood best friend, now ruthless drug dealer Big Arch, who tells Alien he better stop trapping in his territory or he'll murder him. The girls team up with Alien to rob Spring Breakers to the tune of Britney Spears every time, and the next encounter with Arch escalates and Cotty gets shot in the arms, so she packs up her bags and buses it back home as well. Convinced he needs to reassert his authority over the territory, Alien decides to take Candy and Brittany and assassinate Big Arch, so the three of them run up on Big Arch's spot, and while Alien is shot in the head, Candy and Brittany kill everyone in the complex and drive back to school in Big Arch's car. <laughs> End of movie. In his, in his, in his Lambo. <laughs> in his Lambo, yeah. I'm really bad with cars, so... Um, all right, there's so much to unpack here. I kind of want to make this like, you know, the 16-hour podcast. Of course, we're not going to actually do that. But I have so much, so many notes. Um, but the Let's first thing I want to ask, the first thing I want to ask to all you guys, um, what do we think about the girls? Are the girls heroes? Do we like them? Do we, do we identify with them at all? I don't think that we're supposed to identify with them. I think that seeing them and us, they're supposed to be this huge contrast like from the very beginning they're putting them in situations where you know they're robbing a diner they're like their relationship to spring break is i mean i've never been in a small university in the south in a boring town actually that's not true i i actually have um but it, yeah, their relationship to Spring Break is something that I couldn't identify with at all. So I very much felt like I was an outsider watching these people do something that was less relatable than the Wolf of Wall Street. Um, yeah. Interesting. So do you uh, so Claire, just to follow up on that. So when you hear about them saying that, you know, they are experiencing one of the best moments of their life, making friends that will last forever. Are, do you take that experience as authentically, truly spiritual, or do you just see it as all tongue-in-cheek and that these aren't really characters, but just kind of mouthpieces for some ironic comedy? Absolutely the latter. Um, it, if they are getting something spiritual, they were taking drugs we didn't see at the party. Um, I, I, I mean, I don't have a film school background, and I both times I've watched this have kind of come into it um, with just the background of all the other movies I've seen in my life. Um, so uh, for me, it wasn't a problem that I really couldn't identify with them. And I thought that the aspect of the spirituality was unmitigated bullshit. Um, but I like... <laughs> Uh, but I was okay with the bullshit because the theme of the movie is extra. Like everything is super extra and that just added to it. And so I was okay with that. But I, I mean, I think that the furthest thing, this is, it's the furthest thing from authenticity. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's important to read this film as a fantasy um, and that it's playing with this idea between the, the sort of juxtaposition between reality and fantasy. And I mean fantasy in the sort of Lacanian psychoanalytic sense, right? So it's this idea that uh, we might project these images or that we live in this world of play and and we think that it's the real world, but really it is this world of images or this world of signifiers or this, this play of meanings and things like that. And so the idea of then these mantras that they recite, like, you know, let's just pretend it's a video game and it's just a movie. I think those are themes and mantras that sort of, again, prime the audience to, to make you think that this isn't supposed to be some sort of empathic experience necessarily. I mean, you can have an empathic experience even with like a, 
a play of images on a screen through the prism of a fantasy. But I think more than anything, this is kind of like this weird conceptual like shoving in our face of the American dream as a hallucination. So it's the <laughs> the American dream, not as something that, ah, this is something you ought to aspire to, right? Like it's constantly talked about throughout the entire movie, you know, getting money or that this is my American dream. Gucci Mane talks about at one point. And yeah. so all these different things, but no, it's an American hallucination. It's all bullshit. Like Claire just said. And the idea that, oh, it was this great spiritual experience. You know, the girls at the end, they call back to their moms and they're like, I'm going to be better now. I'm just going to go back and be better. It's like, no, all of this is all bullshit. And I think it, it is self-aware. The film is self-aware that this is all bullshit. And I... it's, it sets this up at the beginning, I think, with the juxtaposition that you get between the chaos of spring break and then the serenity of school and the piety of the church setting, which it's like those are the – those are like the 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 structures of society that are supposed to like keep things together, but the chaos of spring break is supposed to be the the burst of freedom. But even that burst of freedom is bullshit. The the way they portray religion is just I I mean I couldn't stop laughing where the where oh, they're yeah. all sitting are in a circle. Are you jacked up on Jesus? And yeah, the, they I mean they kind of nail the youth pastor and like what youth pastors are like. Yeah, it seems awesome. <laughs> But mostly for me, it was when they're all sitting in a circle, just singing amen over and over, mm -hmm. just the word amen for like a minute. Um, but I, I think Austin's absolutely right on it being a kind of fantasy of the American dream. But what's most interesting to me about this movie and the reason that I really do love this movie is that you have this fantasy storyline with the girls and with Alien that might as well have, you know, orcs and elves in it for how hmm. much it actually, you know, relates to any kind of authentic experience. But you have that laid over uh, some really very kind of real and authentic moments and juxtapositions. Like at the very beginning of the film, when they're sitting in that lecture class and they're holding up the signs that say, I want penis and spring break, bitch. Um, mm. you're, they're doing it with a lecture on Jim Crow happening in the background. And then they immediately follow that up by robbing a black owned small business uh, full of black people. Um, and and so even while we have this, you know, whole whole fantasy American dream narrative happening, it's it's laid on the ground of um, their the, the whole movie starting out with um, setting them up as, you know, we can create this fantasy American dream literally built on the backs of and explicitly ignoring like really important racial tensions. And that's not something I think I'm reading too far into. Harmony Corrine is, he's a lot of things, but he's not subtle. Um, so, uh, so that's. Especially not with, especially not with the scene where Faith is really uncomfortable being in Alien's scene where, you know, basically other than Alien, they're the only white people around. Yeah. And that's the only time that you actually see besides people being robbed that you see black people in the film again. Right. Is again at that party scene. And then there's that weird tension, not weird, but there's that intense conflict between Alien and Gucci Mane. I can't remember what his character's name is, but. Um, Big Arch. Big Arch. Uh, and the tension between them is that. You know, this was Gucci Mane's territory. This was his world. He's obviously in real life. Gucci Mane is a hip hop artist. And you get this white guy that comes in who was kind of groomed, who then takes over, who then is creeping into his space. So, again, 
to Claire's point, you get that conflict of sort of exploitation and and kind of ripping away from uh, the backs of people who have who have laid the groundwork, so to speak. And uh, and I think that's cut through as well. Um, so you yeah, kind of absolutely. you kind of do get this weird American myth, but it's this weird, distorted, gross trip of that myth. So oh. for, for me, um, uh, you know, going back to what you guys were saying earlier about uh, or, or at least Jared's point about are they heroes or not? Um, and I uh, t- to me, the hero in the movie is Selena Gomez, just because she's the one that. You know, she had good intentions. She went she went into war, so to speak. And then she was like, you know, this is not where I want to be. And then she left. And then the rest of the movie, I feel like, is like a I wouldn't call a fantasy like you guys are calling it. Or and I also wouldn't say that the spiritual elements bullshit, because to me, it's like the whole movie is a big, tragic character study on. Yeah, just people like these girls who who only, you know, who feel like they're getting a spiritual uh, experience by basically partying and, you know, doing spring break shit. So, yeah, I, I mean, I definitely feel like those girls went through a spirit, th- their version of a spiritual experience is obviously, you know, when we're looking at it from the outside, it seems like bullshit, but to them, they were totally changed by the end of that movie. And, and yeah, I think that I, that's I, valid. I, I, I kind of agree with Ryan here. I think that in as much as an authentic of an experience as these girls can have, I think that they do have it. And and that's one of the most brilliant things about this movie is that, uh, you know, we hear them talking about authentic experiences and meaning they've derived from the trip while we're seeing images of like booties, partying, general debauchery. So on the one hand, it does seem to be ridiculing, I guess you could call American youth culture or pop culture values. But at the same time, I do really think that for these girls who have lived their whole lives in this small town, this is truly a transformational experience for them. And yes, they're young and perhaps they're naive, but and perhaps we, the audience, can look down as, you know, oh, this is uh, very vapid. You know, this is our hedonistic youth culture, blah, blah, blah. But I think for the girls, there is something like what I'll call kind of heroic narcissism in that they (laughs) refuse to be miserable and they'll even like – take action into their own hands and rob a store to fulfill what they believe is a righteous thing to do, which is go on spring break. And to Austin's point, talking about the American dream as this American dream of fantasy, I think a lot about the American dream and a lot about this myth of the American dream is that we take control of our lives and we do whatever necessary to pursue happiness. I think it is important to, I I agree with you, um, but to pull it back a little from the American dream to the spirituality, uh, I think it's important to note that really the only person in the film who keeps talking about it as a spiritual place is Selena Gomez's character. Um, You don't hear Candy or Brittany or Cotty talking about it in the same way. And in fact, in that pool scene where Selena's saying that this is the most spiritual place she's ever been, when she's talking to her grandma, when she's talking about buying a house, they're laughing at her. And as soon as she goes underwater in the pool, um, I think Brittany says, I'm not drunk enough for this shit. Uh, (laughs) So, So we have somebody primed in religion to understand things spiritually who talks about it as a spiritual experience, but the other characters who aren't coming from a spiritual or religious background don't seem to identify with that at all. So maybe the American dream kind of takes the place of spirituality for them. Yeah, exactly. Well, I guess I I never really thought about it. Yeah, could you? Hold on. I just want to – so in the last scene where they're shooting up Big Arch's um, house – so we hear the voiceover 
of them saying, oh, they saw something so beautiful. We made so many friends. By this point, uh, Selena Gomez's character has been bussed back home a long time ago. Are we to believe that that's her voice? I always thought that that was Britney and Candy's voice. Me too. I always, yeah, I was about to say that same thing. I, I honestly, when I saw it, I thought that it was Selena's voice, but I mm. could very much be wrong on that. Maybe it's supposed to be ambiguous. Well, yeah, I was going to say real quick, one of the things that's interesting and in kind of what Claire was saying is you have different archetypes, right? So you have Selena Gomez, who her spirituality is explicit. The way that we think of spirituality is pertaining to religion and sort of some sort of transcendent world, right? But it's also interesting that Alien introduces the idea of the fantasy as well as being he's not from this world. And he says in his first concert, he says, like, I'm not from this world and I've transported all of you to this other world as well. And we can kind of perpetuate that forever. So the mantra spring break forever is another type of spirituality, if you will, not in the religious or monotheistic sense that we're accustomed to in the West, but some sort of transcendent fantasy that they play with. So it's a different type of fantasy. And like Claire was just saying, that's the American fantasy um, that is different because <laughs> – I do think that that element is extremely interesting when you look at the way that it's set up at the beginning with Selena being the one whose name is Faith, who is the religious one, who's told that don't worry, any temptation you can overcome, the Lord will give you the tools to endure, um, which is obviously a passage that gets bastardized all the time for people that will be like, ah, don't worry, God is there to strengthen you. But maybe it kind of does come at the end because at the point when she gets to that 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 level of discomfort where she wants to go home, maybe that's the point where God does give her the strength to endure. So there come the sort of, I don't want to say the clutches because that makes it sound negative, but the uh, the power, if you will, of the institution of religion or of spirituality is able to save her from the quote unquote depravity, right? Or from the discomfort that she's experiencing or whatever it is. And then for the other girls, their experience is a different type of fantasy. So it's still playing at the level of spirituality. It's just under different conditions, if that makes sense. It does. I'm, I'm going to transition this to, uh, and so I would agree that it's spirituality, but I'm kind of less focused on the Christian spirituality. And this is essentially my main reading of the film is that the film is mostly an expression about all things transient. It's about an ecstatic investment in the moment. It's about permanence and impermanence. So one thing that keeps coming back throughout the film is the word forever. Obviously, the mantra of the film, spring break forever. Spring break Alien forever. Forever. <laughs> Alien says, life and poetry, ma, big big booties and money falling, y'all, and it lasts forever. You know, there's Faith says she wishes she could freeze this moment, like if we could have this moment forever. The girls say they never want to go back. Alien says he's always about that money, always and forever. There's this uh, forever, forever, forever. Seems like the world is perfect, like it's never going to end. I just have all these lines written down. <laughs> and to me, like, this is... Uh, I'm bringing this back to the movie being constructed like a drug experience because when you're on drugs, whether you're 20 years old, high in your room reading Nietzsche or 30 years old, high in your room <laughs> reading Nietzsche, um, <laughs> it, it's when you're in a drug experience and you feel that, uh, you know, that good feeling, essentially, you always want it to last forever. And I was almost yeah. kind of half joking with Ryan earlier when I said that, oh, you know, those parts that when the colors get a little bit more drab, they get a little bit more muted. That's the come down. I actually do think that that's deliberate. Mm. And I 
And so I see this as, you know, youth culture is just something that maybe even Harmony Korine himself, who's in his 40s. And for those of you who don't know, he's had a, a bizarre childhood. He was he's been part of the movie industry since he was like 16. Um, he did crazy things. You know, he wrote he got kids. kicked out of Letterman or something for bringing heroin onto the set or something like that. No, I thought it was because, well, on the internet it says it's because he choke slammed Meryl Streep in the green room. <laughs> I don't know. Look, <laughs> oh, okay, it, look yes. it up on the internet. <laughs> okay, yeah, something crazy like that. But he's got uh, you know a history of drug use, and to me, maybe this is you know a kind of send off to his youth of the, these memories he had that. A wish he could last forever. And I think that all people, that, that youth is this very transient moment that you wished could last forever. And it's full of these uh, very intense expressions of feeling, whether it's sex, drugs, beauty, all those things. And I think that this is such a beautiful kind of uh, meditation on all of those very transient, very powerful, very intense things. Yeah. And I think that's why the film kind of almost, whether intentional or not, I mean, he's actually said that you know, that he is intentionally a self-indulgent filmmaker and that he believes that when you make a project like this, it comes from one person's perspective, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm sure it's very personal. You know, it sort of emanates, if you will, from personal experiences. But um, kind of suspending that for a second, I think what the film actually intentionally or not serves that is a really wonderful criticism of late capitalism. Whereas if late capitalism is all about the sort of accumulation of what Lacan would call the objet petit a, the sort of object cause of desire, these little things that you think are the things that you want, but really they're just the things that cause you to desire more and more and more and more, then you never have permanence. So it is a world of transience. And so when you live embedded in that world, it breeds that dissatisfaction that they talk about at the beginning of the film when Selena Gomez's monologue is about, it's just the same house, the same job, the same life. we got to get out of here. we got to break free of the monotony. And yeah, that's a snapshot of those girls' individual experience in that small town. But I think we can extrapolate that and say that this is a comment on the sort of general state of life lived under these conditions where we're saturated by images that we're being fed as transient little palliatives that are supposed to give us peace, they're supposed to make us happy, but they don't. They won't. So what do we do? We need to break fucking free, dissolve the structures, fuck religion, fuck school, fuck responsibility, uh, let's get violent, let's break shit down, let's live like we're in a movie, let's live like it's a video game where we're in control of our shit, and let's live this fantasy, and let's break free and experience freedom. And I think that that happens, but the problem is every time they do that, what happens? They get fucking arrested. That means the system comes back. The structures are suppressing them again. So there's this this constant battle between freedom and then the desire to break free from the sort of ills that that saturate late capitalist life and then the sort of power structures that are constantly suppressing that and transforming it. And so you get this back and forth tension that sort of pushes this film forward even throughout the end until the girls finally say, the two at the end, what is it, Candy and uh, Brittany. the other? Brittany, yeah, and Britt, that's right. They say to their mom, I just want to be happy. You know, um, I think it's uh, it's Ashley Benson's character that says it. I think she's like, she's like, you know, I, I figured out the secret to life. It's I just want to be happy. And I think there's something so cynical in that, that that cuts through that. I think that's that as Claire was saying, Corinne's not an he's not an idiot. He's aware that this life breeds dissatisfaction. The question is, is what is the cause of that dissatisfaction? Yeah, just to br bring back to your points about it being like a dream, Alien's last words are, seems like a dream, like a dream. And uh, no, but I find that really interesting. Actually, I think a good uh, segue to talk about is let's talk about, uh, we talked, to, we mentioned it a little bit earlier, is just to talk about the casting. Selena Gomez, Vanessa Hudgens, best known for their work on the Disney Channel, a cultural hub for American youth culture. Uh, Ashley Benson is on uh, uh, Pretty Little Liars. And then we have Gucci Mane. 
uh, Atlanta rapper who's been in and out of prison, convicted of murder. We have Dangerous, the guy who uh, James Franco is rapping with, who's another under underground rap artist, uh, very Southern stuff. There's all sorts of shout outs to Southern rap culture. When we first see Alien pick up the girls in prison, Alien's uh, holding like a triple cupped styrofoam cup, which... If you're from Texas, like I am, you know that means you're sipping on lean. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, so I'll, I'll go ahead and say my reading of this. I always read this as this was a really interesting juxtaposition of like the world of the Disney Channel and the world of trap rap. Is that mm. they're not, in a way, they're not so different. They both preach materialism, constant and immediate grat- gratification, and with emphasis on aesthetics and glamour. I I thought it was really interesting, the casting choice, uh, because it's not just that there is this, you know, juxtaposition for the viewers or this moment of shock where they see, you know, the girl from the Wizards of Waverly Place all of a sudden, (laughs) like, you know, at this crazy party with like Coke. It's um, it's also that by these stars being in this film, and I think for Vanessa Hudgens and Selena Gomez, it was their first time, I could be wrong on this, but I think it was their first time really doing something outside like the mainstream and Disney Channel style movies. So the, the movie isn't just, you know, doing something for the viewer. It actually is performing the quote unquote corruption of mm. these actresses. Um, <laughs> no, I think I, in, uh, honestly, to me, the, the uh, I totally agree with what you're saying. And, and the, the, the biggest champion of this movie in my mind and the big, the one who had the most to lose is Selena Gomez. Yeah. And all hats off to her for, for agreeing to be in this fucked up movie uh, at, at, you know, a pretty powerful position that she was in, you know, she had no reason to, trash her reputation you know which i'm sure this didn't help like like make her you know get her into any more disney movies right no i mean it's so tough because when you grow up around los angeles and around disney stars and i've I've had some friends that have done lots of disney work and they're fucking they're just normal humans man but they get painted with this bubblegum brush that makes them seem like they would never do a film where they're doing cocaine and having sex, you know, and, and it's actually really difficult. So yes, it's, it's very brave that Selena and Vanessa did this film. And I think it was like, they had to, you know what I mean? Like they had to do this. Uh, film no, I for don't themselves. know what you mean. I don't, well, I feel like if I was there, like, I'd be like, Hmm, no, because no, you get tired of it. You get so fucking tired of it because they've been on TV since they were, you know, preteens and uh, everything they do is monitored by this Disney machine. And if you go out and you get caught doing drugs or you're drunk or you're you're dating somebody, all of that shit is all up in your biz. And we only see, especially if we don't pay attention to that stuff, we see maybe like the, the tabloid stuff. But we're talking every single day in the teeny magazines and on the websites and social media. And yeah, all but these that's, that's, that's the life that they were, you know, well, they, trying they, to leave. The, like, like they were going for that bubblegum image. You know, that, that was the, <laughs> that's their freaking uh, milk card, man. You know? Partly, partly. <laughs> but at the same time, because they got to pay the fucking bills they want to break free from that shit though 
You know, I don't like, no, and so see, that's I, why I, this film, I, I feel I, like they, I, most, most people that get to that position, I don't feel like their first inclination is to go, all right, how can I completely do the opposite of what everyone expects from me? You oh, know? I think I it like is. That's a, <laughs> look at Miley Cyrus. I think it is. Well, yeah, I hundred percent. I, I mean, think I, it yeah, is. I, I do think that there's a trend for these stars that grow up, you know, that, yeah, they're, they're, they're famous before they really know themselves. And then, you know, yeah, they all of a sudden go, okay, I want to break out and I guess maybe you're yeah that was the moment but but that it seemed like they were right in the middle of it whereas you know some like this other other like Justin Bieber or whatever you know he can he's already had a million number one hits and then yeah he can afford to just be like all right well fuck it I'm gonna do whatever I want yeah I don't know maybe well, it's, it's a money thing I think in the behind the scenes on the DVD I think it is um I just read a transcript of it so I haven't actually seen it but I think um but I read that Selena Gomez actually had a really difficult time on set um, kind of guarding her young fans from wanting to come on set and see, you know, Selena and what her new film project was because she felt protective of that image. And she didn't want to like scar these little 10 year old yeah. girls that looked up to uh, the, what, what was the show called, Claire? The Wizards of Waverly? Wizards of Waverly Place. <laughs> yeah, Place. That's right. That's right. Um, and so she wanted to protect her fans. And so she felt a guilt, I guess, is, is kind of what I've read about this, is that she was aware that she wanted to protect her fans. And then she kind of felt a little bit of a guilt. And then Vanessa Hudgens was kind of like, well, the reason I wanted to do this film so much is because I wanted to show people what real girls are. And that was her take on it, that this is what a real girl is. So there's something interesting in the way that they perceived what they were doing as well. Hmm. Really? Yeah, Vanessa wanted to show what a real girl is with this movie? <laughs> yeah, what, what does that mean? <laughs> that's what yeah. she's, that's the quote. That's the quote. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta ask her, I guess. I mean, I, I what do you, believe what do you, what do you, you think, Claire? what the fuck? What, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I... Uh, I, Maybe because um, they're not wearing makeup and they're not like in like superstar Hollywood shape. Maybe that's oh, what she totally meant. Totally wearing makeup. Oh, all of them are wearing makeup. Sometimes, like sometimes, but sometimes you can see like um, a little bit of uh, of acne breakout on their skin and stuff like that. So I don't know. Maybe. I mean, Cotty, Cotty's the only one who, and I think she's wearing makeup for a lot of the film too. She kind of, she stands out in a lot of ways. I mean, she's played by Rachel Kareen. She's Harmony Kareen's wife. And she's the only one to go topless in the film. Um, she's the only one to uh, experience any kind of like, you know, massive physical injury. She gets shot. Um, she, she kind of stands out in a lot of ways that are a little bit more subtle than Selena's, but she, she really is almost kind of of like doing her own thing with the movie uh, than the other stars are. Um, but I think that showing acne does not balance out all of the other ways that this is pretty much <laughs> as far as it gets. I, I mean, I... I have been in and around universities for eight years, and I have never seen someone holding up a cardboard sign that says, I want dick in the middle of lecture. Um, <laughs> they'd probably that's, get extra credit, but. <laughs> that's because that's you weren't studying in the UK, Claire. Um, you know, a little, little wild. Or in St. Petersburg or wherever this is in Florida. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you've seen crazier stuff than that in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Um, yeah, yeah. I, no, no. Uh, I, but I am really curious, actually, Claire, about this from a sort of like feminist perspective. Like, do you think that this is an exploitative film? Do you think that this is like a critical commentary? I mean, do, is there some teeth here? 
I am, I don't know what to make of a lot of this film. Uh, the very beginning where they, you know, they're doing all of the tit shots. Um, and there's one particular moment where, uh, this girl is like, like shaking her boobs and they don't just do one shot of it. They go in and they do a second shot of the same tit shake and it's setting us up for, okay, well, first of all, this is how the editing is going to go in this movie. Um, but also, I mean, I'm going to use the word extra again. Um, so much of this movie is framed on, um, well, first of all, racial exploitation, but also on um, women's sexualized bodies as just kind of being a background, like constantly always there. Um, it, it's kind of, you know, the the setting that this is built on. Um and what's something that I really noticed the last time I watched this is how much the movie flirts with the idea of rape without actually having a sexual assault mm. in the movie. I mean, it depends how you want to classify uh, the James Franco having a gun beach, uh, but not, not <laughs> sexual assault in, you know, in the way that we would kind of expect it. I was watching this with my neighbor and a couple times, this was the, his first time seeing it a couple times. He was like, Oh, this is where the rape scene happens. Doesn't it? Uh, because you see, uh, like Cotty, you know, almost passed out on the floor, wicked drunk, surrounded by dudes saying like, uh, you can't have this pussy and like pulling up her shirt and we're so conditioned from seeing um, films that it, you think, okay, well, you know, she's going to get sexually assaulted here because that's what happens in movies like this. Um, and she doesn't. And it's it's almost surprising that she doesn't because that's so often what happens. You have the moment with James, James Franco and the guns where at, on one hand, it's kind of this interesting power shift where uh, all of a sudden they are sexually exploiting him. I mean, you really probably could call that a sexual assault. Um, and <laughs> I mean, like it, they're, they're functionally strap-ons. Their guns are strap-ons and they are at gunpoint forcing him to perform a sexual task. So, I mean, you know, it's it's maybe a gray area, but it's definitely... I mean, the way I saw it was that they put it in his mouth and then he started sucking him off and then he goes, I just sucked y'all's two dicks. Yeah, I mean, I it, he, seemed... it was regular assault and then he turned it into... Well, right. I don't even know. It's a scene with a lot of nuance. It's called it's called getting freaky, guys. Okay, yeah. if, you're, if you're down yeah. with if you're down with the funky shit, then that's what happens. That's what it's that was called. the moment he fell in love with those two girls. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, but that's that's why I say it's kind of flirting with the idea. It never really yeah. fully goes there. Also, um, I when Cotty gets shot, the way that they're showing her crying in the shower, the way that they like kind of show the wound, it really struck me that this kind it it almost seems like it's a stand-in for sexual assault this kind of like other physical mm. violation she's acting in this in response in the ways that we often see rape victims get portrayed in movies uh, after the assault. Um, and so it, with that and with the gun scene with Alien and with Cotty on the floor, there's all of these moments where it's kind of, you know, it's it's skirting around sexual assault and maybe saying something interesting about the fact that it kind of, I think it knows that we're expecting that. Um, 
And I found that to be fascinating. And I, I mean, very, very much intentional on Corrine's part. And I'm not totally sure what I make of it, but it, hmm. it yeah, it was, it was one of the most interesting things in the film for me. Well, I, I totally get that from the Rachel, I mean, from the, uh, from the just drunk, you know, scene with Rachel Kareen, but I don't, I get that less from when she gets shot. But to, to me, that's, that's more of a signifier of, of kind of what Jerry was saying before the big come down, like all of a sudden, you know, from this kind of freak accident, she gets shot and then, oh shit, reality's here. We're not, it's not spring break forever anymore. What do we do? You know, this is a serious, super serious life threatening thing. Um, that's kind of what I took that more as. Now, what Claire is talking about, I think, is one of the most interesting elements of this movie in that a lot of the tension, a lot of the stakes of this movie are like it's yeah, because in the Rachel Corinne scene where there's all that red light and she's taking beer bong hits and the guys are saying like, man, you look good. I want that pussy, baby. Like, yeah, you think she's going to get raped and that keeps that like kind of builds the tension of the scene then it doesn't happen but also later when uh faith when uh selena gomez's character is trying to get out of the whole situation because when james franco tries to convince her to stay he says to her like i I like you so much you know i'm gonna be thinking about you when i'm with your friends like she is too she's too uncomfortable to say it but what we all know is going on here is that it's really uncomfortable because here are these four gorgeous women surrounded by these men that they don't know in a cultural setting that is very foreign to them. And I think that that's ultimately like, even though it's never said, I think that that's ultimately what's on uh, Faith's mind is that she's afraid she's going to get sexually assaulted, but it's never really said. And uh, I think you're absolutely right there. And that particular scene with them at that party, uh, I I mean, there's the kind of fear coming from faith and also from the audience that, you know, this almost seems like an inevitability. And there's also uh, the just the moments of James Franco stroking her face and her hair while she's telling him that she wants to get away. It, it feels like this massive violation. I was watching that and I was I was so uncomfortable um, just seeing how he was, you know, touching her and stroking her while she feels this kind of like revulsion and terror and wants to get away. And again, it's kind of, it's, it's not, it's not doing anything explicit. It's just playing around the idea, but it felt like watching such a, a a vulnerable kind of gross moment, um, more so than a lot of other things in the film that are more graphic or explicit. And especially because we know culturally that these things happen, it creates this tension, even though the film itself isn't teasing it. And I think it's, yeah, that's just another thing that's so brilliant. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, I wonder, it seems like there's a radical tone shift almost when Alien gets introduced. And I had never thought about this before in the eight times that I've seen it previously, but he almost comes in like a Faustian devil. Right. (laughs) He bails them out of he bails them out of jail. And that scene when he's out by his car and they do these like close ups on his face. He's so fucking creepy and smarmy. And, you know, he's got that grill and he's so gross. And all I could think about was, oh, this is a deal with the devil. That's what's going on now. And it's almost from that point on, it kind of like created this break, whereas maybe they 
They hinted at this idea of the real in breaking into the fantasy before, but then when Alien comes in, the devil presents them with the real as such. It's like, hey, okay, you really want to be bad girls? You really want to live that fantastic life and do something crazy? Well, let's talk about guns, killing people. Uh, we've got this money. Um, now we actually are going to have sex. That's the first time that they have sex, right, is when it's with Alien later in the jacuzzi. So. Then it's it's no longer just about the fantasy, but now it's more about the dirtiness of the real as such. And that's too much for Selena to handle. She realizes it, and so she takes off, and she goes back to the comforts of her piety. But the other girls, they try to play with it a little longer until one gets shot, and then the others, I don't really know what to make of the end in relation to this because it's kind of crazy. I was trying to think about it, but it, it still seems that it's this pure expression of the, the sort of tearing apart, if you will, of the fantasy. Spring Break Forever doesn't work anymore. That's all bullshit, you know, and, and that shift happens when Alien comes in because of that sort of Faustian deal. So uh, I'm wondering what you think of the fact that um, you said you're still trying to make sense of the ending, but if if Alien is the Faustian devil shifting them from the fantasy to the really dark underbelly, what's the shift that happens once Alien's dead? Mm. Yeah, I don't know. That's exactly what I'm not sure about. Um, because is it them rejecting the devil? Is it them breaking the... The, the sort of pact, but they don't break the pact. Um, well, they kind of, I mean, they go back to college. You know, they could stay there forever. They could live in Gucci Mane's mansion. You know, they took his car, but ultimately they decide to go back to school. Yeah, they realize that the pleasures of the world that the, that the devil offers um, aren't all that they're cracked up to be in. You know, that maybe there's this, some sort of like Hegelian overcoming, right? This alpha boom. They realize, ah, well, maybe we, we can take that experience. We grow and we move on and we take it back to our lives with us and we're changed or some shit like that. Wait, they go back to school. I, <laughs> See, I, I think didn't... it's I, I think it's more it's more that those things. It's not that they're all they're not all they're cracked up to be. It's that they can't last mm. forever. Uh, that that's what it means to me. You know, I, there's a shot where during the Britney Spears thing where the Robin, the Spring Breakers, there's a shot, hopefully you guys remember it since you've seen it recently, where it pushes in on James Franco smoking a blunt. And for the first time, we see his happy grin turn into a little bit of a frown. And I've never really known how to read this shot. Mm. But to me, it almost seems like he realizes that just as spring break or youth or a drug experience can't last forever, neither can his hustler lifestyle, which mm. he learns with Big Arch. Um, but I, I want to transition to this to my last point to have in my notes, and then we can talk about how much we love James Franco. <laughs> but um, so there's this motif in the film of sexuality, violence, and guns, or more, uh, or more specifically, death. So, uh, for example, when Vanessa Hudgens uh, shows that piece of paper that says "I want penis," and then she like mimics giving Dick. fellatio, and then she like, and yeah, I'm sorry, and. Uh, and then she mimics giving fellatio and then she like pantomimes a gun to her head going. Phew. And then um, throughout the beginning when they're in college and they're smoking uh, from a bong, every time they light the lighter, it's the sound of a gun cocking. Yeah. Um, the girls are always taking shots out of a water gun. Um, there's uh, sounds of guns clicking and loading are juxtaposed with close ups of the girls butts. And then we talked about Alien literally fillets a gun. They um, watch. They watch. They watch backyard bring... fights with Kimbo at one point. They're sitting there. Ta they're talking right. in Ashley Benson's watching fucking Kimbo's backyard brawls. You know. They rob one of uh, Alien's drug dealers or something, right? Oh yeah, at one point because they come in with like a handful of cash when he picks yeah. him up in his Camaro, and he's like, "Oh, nice! Look at all this cash." 
And when they when they shoot Big Arch in the end, uh, they they're they're shooting him even while like he's in the middle of a threesome with these naked women, and it, the it almost once since you've seen all of the movie so far, it seems kind of natural that Big Arch would be in the middle of a sexual experience right before he gets shot. There was something that mm. felt very kind of expected about that which is interesting in itself that yeah that's maybe the the final like climactic moment of sexuality really being paired with violence in a in an explicit way yeah so um I asked one of our uh, philosophy advisors to point me in the direction of a philosopher that talks about this proximity between sex and death and she told me this is a Mia Wood wonderful teacher she teaches here in LA um, and she told me, well, you should know that the French call an orgasm a little death. And I was like, oh, that's super interesting. What does that mean? And uh, she said, oh, well, I don't have time right now, but you should look at some Foucault. And I was doing a bit of searching and I found a quote about Foucault by this guy who wrote, a, wrote about Foucault. His name is James Miller. It says, through intoxication, reverie, and the Dionysian abandon of the artist, the most punishing and ascetic practices, and the uninhibited exploration of sadomasochistic eroticism, it seems possible to breach, however briefly, the boundaries separating the conscious and the unconscious, reason and unreason, pleasure and pain, and at the ultimate limit, life and death. Hmm. So I, 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 probably not the best quote I could uphold, but I have seen this in other movies as well where there are these visual or thematic juxtapositions between sex and death, and especially for a movie that I am mostly reading as a study on transient kind of ecstatic investments in the moment. Yeah. I found this very well, interesting. Well, real quick, if viewers are, I mean, viewers, if listeners are interested in exploring that idea further, Gilles Deleuze actually has a book on Marquis de Sade, uh, which kind of deals with this uh, a Ooh. bit as well. So, um, you know, obviously the Marquis de Sade would be, um, an interesting figure to kind of talk about with regards to the, the relation between sexuality and violence as well. And so there is a long tradition in French philosophy and just in Western philosophy, but in, in French philosophy of kind of dealing with that, with that I, balance. I also think that, I mean, obviously these are people that Deleuze is pulling on and he, he wrote a book on Nietzsche, but Freud and Nietzsche are both, both really explicitly talk about violence and sex and with Freud, especially sex and death. And, uh, it, it was interesting that you used the term Dionysian, um, that was I I at the very beginning of the podcast, I was thinking um, or I was remembering how that was what I was thinking about the first time that I watched it in 2012, uh, which is this Dionysian moment is letting go of the the self, the individual um, and being fully immersed in this Bacchanalian moment where uh, all of these separate wills become a multiplicity of wills and you literally lose yourself in the music, <laughs> lose yourself in the music, uh, you lose <laughs> yourself in the music and you lose yourself in the sex. And it's not about there, there are no individuals anymore. Um, and that, that seems like it plays a 
really big role in the film. Um, but of course, you know, accompanying the Bacchanal is violence and death. The Mayanads, um, who were traditionally uh, Dionysus, uh, like handmaids, they lived out in the woods, these like crazy, sexual, like violent women uh, who represented everything that, uh, that Dionysus stood for. They were incredibly dangerous. Um, and... Uh, I kind of forgot where I was going with this, but there's a long history, both in Greek mythology and contemporary philosophy of sex and death being really intertwined. Um, but I think also beyond philosophy, it's so it's so entrenched in our culture that sex and violence are, you know, things that accompany one another. Um, and that's a huge thing that feminists and feminist philosophers have talked about. And so uh, watching Spring Breakers, I wasn't sure if, I mean, Harmony Kareen seems like he's very aware of that, obviously, and trying to kind of blow it up. But I'm not sure if with him blowing up this connection between sex and violence, he's doing some kind of successful critique of it, or if he's really just making another movie about mm. sex being uh, entwined with violence. I'm not sure if what he's doing there is successful. Um, so uh, I don't know if any of you thought about it in that way, or if you had any thoughts on it. Um, it's it's really hard to do a a critique of something where you're doing that critique via hyperbole and to make that successful rather than to just kind of feed back into the thing that you're trying to critique. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe because with every Dionysian moment, there's also the tension with the Apollonian moment, right? With Apollo. And so maybe what you get is the sort of stranglehold of Apollo, sort of uh, the Apollonian experience at the beginning, the the sort of power structures, or if we're going to kind of mix our, our philosophical concepts here, the ideological state apparatuses of the school and the church and, and the sort of the normal social life. And so how do you break free from that monotony? And here I am, I'm going to beat my... I've, Sorry, everybody, I'm going to beat my hobby horse. Um, how do you break free from the sort of like monotony of late capitalism? It's through sex and violence. It's either through sex, the release of jouissance, um, the release of the orgasm, the ecstasy, the libidinal free energy um, that you get in the sort of Dionysian moment, you know, the, the the dance with Bacchus and the gods, right, of drinking wine and partying and having sex and being the hedonist. Or what's the other way out? You die. You kill yourself. And so that's how you break free or, or you get killed. And that's how you break free from the monotony. Those are the only two ways out uh, when you're dead or when you're in that pure moment of jouissance or that pure moment of ecstasy. And that's it. But the problem is, is that can't last. Like, I mean, death will last. Um, and you see that, obviously. But the, the ecstasy won't last. You will have those moments of come down. And that's that tension between the Dionysian and the Apollonian, perhaps. I know that's dire as fuck, but... Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, had to, I just had to, I had to kick my dog out of the recording booth. <laughs> okay, so we're at one hour, guys. I want to go around and uh, just talk about people's favorite lines, favorite things about the movie, and then we'll wrap this up. I mean, look at my shit. Look at my shit. I got shorts of every color. I got, I got gold bullets. That's the best scene. I got I mean, my I, dark I got tin a, and oil. Yeah, I, I got my dark well, tin I, I and oil. I got a question. Who, who uh, <laughs> of you three had had seen the Riff Raff video that that scene's based on before the movie? Any allegedly. Allegedly. 
No, Allegedly, I, I, that scene see, is I'm, a direct I'm in the camp of I know, no, I just, I just remember that Riff Raff. I think he was trying to sue them at one point because he was saying that, like, ah, this that, that was like a, a taking of my likeness or whatever. And so Franco and them had to come out and be like, no, man, they're a bunch well, of dude, white have rappers you, have with you not, have, you, have you not seen that video though? That 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 is straight up that favorite scene of yours is is a uh, is literally line for line uh, a Riff Raff video. <laughs> oh, is like it of him? Of him? Yeah, totally, dude. Sh- line for line. No, okay, it, it's literally him going around his room going look at my shit look at this look at this fucking gun look at this shit over here and he's like like look at this coffee maker it's like just stupid shit but like it's totally a hundred percent uh uh you if you saw it there was no way you could deny that that is not the scene in the movie which i think he has a good case honestly <laughs> like i'm not i'm not joking uh, <laughs> and, and well, i and, all right well i haven't seen this video oh, you so haven't seen the video this is your favorite movie of all time oh i can't wait to show you this and blow your mind the video has nothing to do with i the cannot movie. wait to show you this the movie exists independently all right I'll, I'm no, i mean i will say not. i yeah, will I mean, say that people should follow jody high roller slash riffraff on instagram if you don't because uh, it will enhance your life like tenfold and, and you should follow the ATL twins. Do y'all, are you all familiar with them? <laughs> on, only, I am. Yeah, on, only from uh, like a little bit. What, what's well, so special I mean, about I them? I had known about them too. I mean, I mean, they're hilarious. They're like just these two. I mean, they are the people in the movie. They they like <laughs> uh, have tat. They, the ones are righty, ones a lefty. They sleep in the same bed. They have sex with the same women. <laughs> they have tattoo. They have tattoos on opposite sides of the body. The same tattoos on like mirror sides of each each other's bodies. It's fucking crazy. They're hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, one thing that uh, that just kind of um, that I wanted to toss in is uh, for any longtime listeners of this uh, podcast, I don't know if you remember um, in the Drive episode, there was a lot of discussion about sharks and um, the the meaning of mm. um, the, of Ryan Gosling as a shark, and it, there mm. was a, a conversation in Spring Breakers where they're all leaning over the balcony, and Alien is talking about how there's a lot of sharks out there lurking and you got to be careful mm. for the sharks lurking. and yeah. lurking Lurk, sharks are lurking. <laughs> and I just, I mean, obviously I wasn't on the drive podcast, but I, I saw that in the movie and I was like, Hey, hold up a second. I recognize that. Um, yeah. so we could consider renaming the podcast. Show me the meaning <laughs> of the sharks. Um, that's right. But <laughs> the, the common motif in every film, we need to try to find and see if there is a sort of allusion to a shark, uh, in, in every single movie that we do. I will say, you know, talking about how awesome James Franco is in this movie, and I haven't seen the disaster artist, but you, you, you swear by it, Jared. It seems like James Franco is best when playing real life weirdos. Am I right or am I right? Yeah, absolutely. One hundred percent. Yeah. He's he's best when he's going off the fucking rails because, like, I can't stand him in the interview. Like the first half of this movie, just or half yeah. that movie, he's just insufferable. I fucking hate that movie. Yeah, but uh, yeah, pretty much everything that comes out of James Franco's mouth is my favorite part of this movie. Yeah, I mean the the, the scene when he's playing the piano version of the Britney Spears every yeah, time. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> like I, I I got I got a little emotional actually this time. Me too. I got like Me I too. did. I got like almost a little. I got like a little damp in the eyes. I was like, oh, this was it was beautiful. I, I don't know. It was really weird, man. The other the other movie where he he portrays a real life weirdo is this is the end when he plays himself and he's great in that movie. <laughs> oh, that's another one I can't stand. Really, but, uh, you don't like that movie? Anyway, um, I no not. This not is really. the only like movie I've that, ever seen James Franco in where I didn't hate him. I I hate really? James Franco. I hate him really? so much. Yeah, he's so self satisfied. 
Yes, I, lo- I love my ex-girlfriend. Actually, he's been one of my man crushes. I have like inspiration crushes where people that are kind of like polymaths um, or what I call 21st century renaissance men um, that kind of like do everything. I, I kind of like look up to them. And I used to have a T-shirt that my ex-girlfriend made for me that was WWJFD. What would James Franco do? <laughs> and I lost that shirt. But damn it, that I want it back. <laughs> What would James Franco do? He would be the, you know, the commencement speaker at his own graduation. That's what James Franco would do. <laughs> Damn straight. <laughs> I mean, he, yeah, he definitely seems pretty self-satisfied with himself. But, but like, I definitely am impressed with his body of work. I mean, I certainly, he certainly seems like a person that, if, you know, if I hung, I probably wouldn't want to hang out with for too long. You know, he seems like it could be annoying. But like, I don't know. As an artist, I am always uh impressed with what he's actually I'll, I'll modify my statement i liked him in freaks and geeks oh yeah he's oh, awesome oh yeah that's a good throwback i like him in rise of the planet of the apes <laughs> <laughs> i like him in everything everything he does all right well that's going to wrap it up for today's show me the meaning podcast be sure to send us emails at movies at wisecrack.co let us know what you want us to cover next and i think next time we'll probably open up the mailbag to some questions didn't have the time to uh, go through them and prepare them for this podcast i want to thank my co-hosts ryan austin and claire thank you guys so much thank, thank you, you thanks for having me yeah absolutely and i uh, just want to remind you guys that we've still got our rick and morty podcast the squanch going on every other week so be sure to check that out we also have decided to continue our south park podcast which will also be coming on every other week so be sure to check that out and uh, we have the thug notes get lit podcast where greg aka sparky sweets phd is breaking down some of the best books ever written and we are continuing to develop other new podcasts so uh, be on the lookout for that and uh that's all i've got big booties and money falling y'all peace Spring break, break, break. break.